Today, we are on the book of Acts. We're in the book of Acts. We've been in the book of Acts for most of this year. And we're in a series right now called Expansion. It's all about how the gospel has overcome every boundary in the early church to expand, regardless of whatever constraints people have put on the gospel and the church. And one of the key bits about the gospel going out as God promised to all nations was that most nations are not Jewish people. And so God is going to save the life of and appoint a person to become an apostle, to be sent to these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, and him we often call the Apostle Paul. And so this is where we have come to in the book of Acts. And if you want to turn to Acts chapter 9 and put your place in that part of the Bible, we're going to get there and we're going to see what God did in his life. But as we look at what actually God did in his life, it's going to speak a lot to what God can do in our life and how he repurposes us from one place to another. And so I've got four headings for you. There's a graphic that's going to come up behind me. And what we're going to see is that everything in the different points relates to something else in a later point. So we're going to be playing good games. I don't know who likes these kinds of things, but I do. That's why this is like this. But we're going to see that there was something that Saul of Tarsus was about, and we're going to see how Jesus completely turns that around. We're going to see how there were abilities and gifts that Paul had, and we're going to see how God turns that around and uses that for his glory. And in this way, we're going to see how God does this act of redemption, making us new. And so that's the roadmap. We're going to start in heading number one. This is a bit of a biographical preach about this guy. And his name we know as the Apostle Paul. So heading one is the legacy and the life of the Apostle Paul. Three things I want you to know about him. Firstly, he was brilliant. Okay? This guy, who was known as Saul of Tarsus, he had a university education. Now, in our day and age, a university education is not that common. But let me tell you, in that ancient world, to have a university education was incredibly rare. This is the rarest of the rare to be at university, but moreover, to actually have a university from Tarsus, which was rivaling Alexandria and Athens, the top universities of the day. Uh, there's no comparison. Even Oxford in our day doesn't compare to the elitism of being brilliant enough to be in this university education, let alone that in Galatians 1, 13 to 14, we hear that Paul was under the instruction of an Old Testament um, scholar called Gamaliel. And this guy is the top of the pops. Now, this was a brilliant mind, Paul. He wrote the book of Romans. I'm intimidated by the book of Romans. He wrote the book of Romans. This guy's clever. He quotes the Old Testament over 100 times in Romans. He did that from memory because they, we know that there was no capacity for him to have scrolls on him when he's in prison. So he recited all of these things off the top of his head. It is not uncommon for the scholars of Gamaliel to actually know the whole Old Testament off by heart. How many of you know the whole Old Testament off by heart? Is there any dishonest? Okay. No dishonesty in the house. Praise the Lord. Now, this guy was absolutely brilliant. Top education, top instructor. He's a brilliant mind. Second thing I want you to know about him is he's prolific. In the New Testament, there's 27 books. Paul wrote 13 of them. So if you take Paul out of the New Testament, we are lacking in understanding as to how to live the Christian life. I don't know how we would know how to run church or how to live the basic life if it wasn't for Paul that wrote huge volumes. So he's prolific. The third thing I want you to know is that he's very resilient. He had a ministry that lasted 10 years. I don't know what you've achieved in 10 years, but I want to suggest it's probably not equal to what Paul did in 10 years. 
In his ministry, one Bible scholar worked out that he walked 20 miles every day. That's walking from here to Centurion. I don't even want to drive to Centurion. I think it's a schlep to drive to Centurion. I think that the people of Pretoria can preach to the people in Pretoria. I think God has appointed people there. Lacquer, the Afrikaans Mensa, they can preach to each other. Three CIs there, great church. I'm not going to go even drive to Centurion. This guy walked 32 kilometers to Centurion. I wouldn't do that one day in my life. He did that every day of his life because he's so committed to the cause that God gave him. That's how resilient he is about the thing that God gave him. And one of the things I wanted to say is one of the reasons he was so mobile was because he was single. Many people... <laughs> was that a... That was a, not supposed to be a joke, but... Are you guys laughing because my wife is on crutches? Totally irrelevant to that. Is that just like a double layer? <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know how to recover this in a way that doesn't sound funny second time around. One of the reasons he was capable on a whim to follow God's voice with absolutely no consultation, no consideration of extraneous things, was the fact that he only had to obey God, not his wife as well. Now that it's a joke, now I'm just milking it. Okay, cool. But no, seriously... Some people are, believe the lie that God can only use you when you're married. Some people believe you've only arrived as a Christian when you're married. Some people believe the purposes God has for you are only in their fruition when you're married. Some people think when they're now widowed and their spouse has passed away that they passed their expiry date. This is a lie. Paul was single when he did this. In fact, he was probably widowed. And God only could achieve this through his life. Because he was completely devoted only to God's cause. It says in 1 Corinthians, it is better to be single. So for all of you that are married and you're offended by the statement, I'm sorry, it's just a Bible fact. God says it's better to be single and to be only dedicated to the interests of the Lord. This is one of the reasons why Paul had such a big impact. So for all of you that are single, I want you to know you're in pole position. All of us need to glorify God with our lives. But I just want the single people to know that the church was always propelled forward by single people in ways that married couples couldn't compare to. It's just a fact. <clears throat> so that's this guy. But before he was this impactful Paul the Apostle, he was actually Saul of Tarsus. He, uh, his reputation preceded him as a murderer. So that's heading number two about Saul of Tarsus. In the book of Acts, we meet him in chapter 7, in verse 58. We learn that he was a guy who was part of the murdering of this guy called Stephen, an early Christian church leader, a deacon. And what we learn is that he and his cronies stoned this guy to, to death. It wasn't like part of the judicial system. It was just mob justice. It was just the fact that this guy preached Jesus and they wanted to shut him up. So they killed him. So that's where we pick up. He's just murdered a guy. Now we're here in Acts 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So is his bloodlust calmed down now after killing Stephen? Far from it. He is breathing threat after threat after threat that he's going to imprison the people of God. In fact, he went to the high priest. And he asked the high priest for permission to get correspondence letters to identify these people that belong to the way. 
Now, we're not familiar with that term. We just call ourselves Christians. But that term doesn't appear in the Bible. It appears thrice, and it's always as an insult. <laughs> Bloody Christians. And we were like, oh, that's a good compliment, actually. A little Christ. I'll, I'll adopt that. But that isn't what they called themselves. They called themselves people of the way. What does that stem from? It stems from Jesus saying in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So people that believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life are people of the way. And the fundamental question is, do you think Jesus is the way? Because Jesus didn't say, I'm a way. If he said, I'm a way, that would have been palatable. But people were offended because he said, I am the way. And the people of God that believe he is the way, don't believe he's a way. They believe he's the way. And that's what got them in trouble. So my question is, do you believe that Jesus is the way? If you say, no, I don't, but I am religious, so was Saul of Tarsus. It didn't make him right with God. If you say, I don't believe he's the way, but I am spiritual, so was Saul of Tarsus. If you say, no, I don't believe he's the way, but I am zealous, so was Saul of Tarsus. None of these things are fundamental to how you stand with God. The one thing that determines how you stand with God is, do you believe Jesus is the way? And so that's us. So he comes here. Here's Saul. And here he comes. And he hears people calling Jesus the way. Finds it offensive. He's going to kill them. So the first thing that we learn about Saul is that he ravaged the church. We find here that even the women were not safe. It says here, any belonging to the way, men or women, he brought them to Jerusalem. So my Omar's sitting here in the front row. I want you to imagine your Jesus-loving gran being dragged off by the feet and the hands shackled because she loves Jesus. I want you to imagine your daughter, your sister, your wife being dragged off simply because they believe Jesus is the way. This is a ruthless man with ruthless means. He ravaged the church. In fact, he got this jurisdiction of 150 miles to go hunt down the church. Second thing I want you to know about Saul is that he radically pursued his own goals. He was committed to his own goals. He went and hunted down relentlessly these Christians. He did so, and this was the early persecution of the church. But I want you to know the persecution of the church didn't stop in Acts. It's alive and kicking today in a measure that it's never been. Around the world, we have pastors that are in prison. We have churches being burnt down. We have children that are being tortured to give up the names of their Jesus-following friends. We have people that are burnt, people that are murdered and beaten for being Christ followers. If you don't know, one in every seven Christians cannot openly practice Christianity in the nation that they live. We live in a privileged position. We've got to make light while the sun's here. We've got to make use of the freedom that God has given us. But many people don't have that freedom. And so I would point you to a resource like Open Doors. Look at their website. Look at what God is doing in those nations and pray for them. This is the best thing that we can do for them is to pray. And at the moment today on the calendar for Open Doors is we're praying for Burkina Faso in Western Africa. That's who we're praying for on this day in, on that website. And in Nigeria and Burkina Faso, the front lines of African evangelism is meeting the front lines of Islamic terrorist groups that are murdering Christians. North of Nigeria and Burkina Faso is all Islamic, living under complete violence. South of that is Christian. We are praying for the nation that is on the front lines of the advance of the gospel to go into North Africa. 
the people that are being shot by Boko Haram for believing in Jesus. We're praying for them today to be full of boldness, to hold strong to the testimony of Jesus by the blood of the Lamb, and to not swerve into the background, to not completely abandon their faith, but to stand strong, even at gunpoint, that they say, I believe Jesus is the way, I'm willing to die on account of it. Question is, are you willing to die on account of the claim that Jesus is the way? It's a piercing question. It really cuts to the heart of how deep and committed are we to say we love Jesus. So there are people out there that are willing to die, and they do it on a daily basis. Anyway, he radically pursued his goals. We're on that point or something like that. The next thing that we learn about Saul is that he's very religious. In Galatians chapter 1, he says, You've heard of my former way in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. This is a religious, religious, religious guy. If you think you know someone religious, this guy took the cake. And he gives his credentials in many parts of the Bible. And we're going to see how God turns this around. So he ravages the church. He radically pursues his goals. And he's religious. So how does he go from that to being the apostle that God chooses and dispatches to the Gentiles. What, what's the in-between part while we're there? we hear Acts chapter 9, verses 3 to 9. This is the account of the great turnaround. It says, Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Shaul, Shaul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but not seeing anyone. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So in contrast to Saul, we're going to see three contrasting things that Jesus does to intervene in the life of Saul. The first thing we saw about Saul is that he ravages the church, but Jesus actually protects the church. The first thing that he rocks up, he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's a perplexing statement because if you're following Acts in chapter 1, Jesus is ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is not walking on two legs somewhere in Damascus. So why does Jesus say, why are you persecuting me? And the answer to the riddle is that the way that Jesus loves his church is the way that a husband loves a wife. He so dearly loves the church that an attack on the church is an attack on himself. Paul even got a hold of this in, late in his life in Ephesians 5. He says, husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church and he gave himself up for her washing her with the water of the word to leave her spotless without wrinkle or any such thing. An attack on the church is an attack on Jesus. The same way that if someone attacked my wife, I highly doubt even at my worst day that I would say, oh, that's got nothing to do with me. If someone attacks my wife, my wife can deal with it. There's no way because I love my wife. So that person's gonna have me to deal with because I love her, I'm protective over her. In the same way, the unity between Jesus and the church is inseparable. And so an attack on, on the church is an attack on Jesus. 
Jesus doesn't protect the church in the sense that no suffering or tragedy can fall upon the church. In fact, one page ago in Acts 7, didn't we just see Stephen got stoned to death? Jesus did not step in and did not save Stephen's life from death there. So it's not true that we are exempt from suffering or tragedy. But the way that Jesus protects his church is that there will be a reckoning for every single person that persecutes the church. In the book of Revelation, it says he will avenge the blood of the martyrs. And an attack on the church, he deeply feels like an attack on him in his most private, most intimate love of his heart. Totally the opposite of Saul, who ravages the church. Well, here we have that, and then we have in verse 4, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But the thing that we sometimes miss in Hebrew is if you repeat a word, it's double emphatic, it communicates emotion. It's like in parts of the Bible where you read, my son, my son. Or when Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And so when God comes to this murderer and he says, Shaul, Shaul, there's still tenderness in his voice. God's mercy is still pursuing this murderer, even though this murderer is murdering God's own children. God's mercy is still there for him. So he appears like a light that shone around him. God appears in a glorious resurrected form in a way that throws Saul to his face. And when he gets up, his eyes were open, but he saw nothing. And for three days, he was without sight. God is, what God is doing is he's mirroring the physical and the spiritual conditions of Saul. Before, Saul had perfect eyesight, but he was spiritually blind to who God is and what God is asking of him. But now that he encounters Jesus, Jesus does the exchange and he gets physically blind in order to see the light and his spiritual eyes of his heart are opened. That is what happened in him and that is what happened to all of us in some measure when we came to know Jesus as Lord, that the eyes of our hearts were open and our physical eyes can never see the world ever again in the same way. Not many of us are physically blinded when we put our faith in Jesus, but many of our physical capacities are completely changed. And what we have here is Saul completely blinded for three days. Amazing, amazing. We actually see here Jesus coming and turning his life around to actually protect the church. Second thing we see, where we have Saul that was radically pursuing his goals, we actually see Jesus is radically pursuing Saul of Tarsus. We see this, that this encounter is remarkable because many of us believe, you know, how you come to Jesus, you have to open your heart, you have to spiritually search for him, you know, you have to like, you have to search have to like really find God out there. You know, I found Jesus. That's the kind of thought that we have. Is that the stall? The, the stall. Is that the story of Saul of Tarsus? Was is his story around the campfire one day? You know, I was on a spiritual journey on Damascus Road, and because of my open heart and my searching soul, I found Jesus. Far from it. The story is he hated Jesus. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And the story is that Jesus had the open heart. Jesus is the one that wanted a relationship. Jesus is the one that pursued Saul. Long before you ever pursue God, God pursues you first. He says in John 15, nobody comes to me. Oh no, he says, I'm just a shortened version. You did not choose me, but I chose you. 
Long before we choose Jesus, He comes after us when we have no feeling for Him. I remember God came after me when I had no feeling, not a single heartbeat of love for Jesus. He came after me. He comes with the paddles of life. You know those when they like resuscitate someone that's basically dead, their heart isn't beating, they come, they put the paddles to your chest. Jesus came and he put the paddles to the chest of my heart. I had no feeling for him and by his grace he sought me out. It was all of his own initiative. He saved me from beginning to end so that no one may boast but everyone glorifies by Jesus that this thing was done. He comes after us long before we come after him. Hallelujah, God be praised. That's the kind of God that we serve. Now, the next thing we see, although Saul was very religious, we find that Jesus saves by grace alone. You know, in his testimony, Paul says in in Philippians 2 and in Galatians and in many places that he tried so hard to be a good Pharisee, to keep the law. And you know, as his relationship with, with Jesus grows, he finds that all this is rubbish in comparison to the glory of God. He finds that all of that was absolutely useless because Jesus saves by grace alone. And the more that he lived his life with Jesus, the more he thought more of Jesus' grace, less of himself. In fact, he says in 1 Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I am the chief of sinners. He considered himself the worst of the worst. And yet, that's who Jesus came for. Jesus came for the worst of the worst. And Paul says, that's me. I identify with that. And the truth about God's saving grace is it's not about Saul's life. It's about Jesus' life. It's not about Saul's record. It's about Jesus' record. It's not about what Saul can do for Jesus. It's about what Jesus did for Saul. It's all by grace that we are saved. This is the great revelation. This is the reason But this is what the gospel is built on. We are saved by grace alone. So the application is you have to stop striving to earn grace. You're insulting Jesus, telling him his work on the cross was insufficient. When in fact it is sufficient. What Jesus did, it is finished. There's nothing left to do but to receive the gift that God has given to us. Now, it's by grace that Jesus saves, but it's often on the back heels of a prayer that God would save. In Acts chapter 7, we actually find this, that Stephen, as he was being stoned to death, prayed a prayer. He prayed a prayer similar to that of Jesus as Jesus was dying on the cross. And Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now Stephen is being stoned to death. And he prays this prayer to those that are killing him. Father, would you forgive them? And then you flip your Bible over from Acts 7 to Acts 9. And what do you find? Saul of Tarsus, the murderer of Stephen, is forgiven by Jesus. How was this life turned around? It was because of prayer. How was this world changed? It was because of prayer. He prayed a prayer. Was it a fancy prayer? No, it was a one-liner. And what did God do? He changed the world. So what are we doing to expand the gospel. Number number one thing we're doing is prayer. If you're not praying, you're not doing the most important thing for the expansion of the kingdom. God changes the world and he does it through prayer. Who should you be praying for? Who's the person on your list that you have just given up on because they're too far gone? Is it because you think they're too hard-heartened? I would like to think that the person you you think you've stopped praying for is not as hard-heartened as Saul who was out there trying to murder Christians. 
And yet look at how God answered the prayer for Saul. There is no one too far gone. We must be persistent. I remember the prayer, um, the sermon that Glenn prayed here, our previous pastor, when he just, the gist of it was just keep praying. Just keep praying. Just keep praying. The best thing that we can do is to just keep praying. Because God's a God who answers prayer. Amen. Now, here we get, that's how Jesus intervened. And then what's the result on this guy's life? So this is how God changed Saul, heading number four. And it's going to link back all the way to heading number one. We find that there's a dramatic change in this man. And the dramatic change is the gospel. The gospel took hold of his heart. And because of the gospel, he says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And you know, in our society, often we feel ashamed of the gospel. If you say to someone that they are a sinner, do you think people want to hear that? It's offensive. If you tell someone they need a savior, do you think they want to hear that? It's offensive. If you tell someone there's only one way, do you think they want to hear that? It's offensive. In fact, Paul says in Galatians, shall I remove the offense of the cross? Nope. We understand that the gospels can be offensive. But what we also understand is what Paul said. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. When the gospel is preached, when the gospel is explained, the gospel itself, God has invested his power in the gospel message, not in the deliverer, not in the receiver, but in the message of the gospel. It is the power of salvation. You never know what's going to happen when you tell people about the gospel or when you stand up and you say, this is the gospel. It is God power. In fact, the word that's used, um, it is the power for salvation, is dunamis. Dunamis is sometimes translated as power, but it's sometimes translated as miracle. The gospel has a miraculous embedded power. It is filled with the rocket fuel to be a miraculous agent of change in someone's life. I know because I was the recipient of it. It's the God's power is invested in the gospel. So we cannot be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is filled with a rocket fuel for God to change people's lives and to change nations, to change Pritchard Street, to change Joburg, to change South Africa, to rip through Africa, to change the nations. What's going to do that? Political stuff? No. It's going to be the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It changes people around 180 degrees. And therefore, we're not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is what can save you. What is the gospel? It's not about what you can do. It's about what Jesus has done for you. It's not about what you have done. It's about what Jesus has done. It's not about what you deserve. It's about what Jesus has earned for you. It's all by grace, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the thing that changes a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. It's the gospel. It's wonderful. And the application is, do you know Jesus? Have you come into contact? Have the paddles of life hit your heart? And then you say, Whoa, the gospel. I thank you, Jesus. Has that happened in your life? If not, I would say, we want to help you to get to know Jesus, to know this message of the gospel. If you're online as well, or if in the room, it's the best thing. It's the start of your new life. It'll be amazing. This is what happened. This is what happened to Paul, was the gospel. And so God changed everything around. We see that Paul becomes a new guy. And we see that God uses all of his old strengths, all of his old contacts and everything that he was. And he uses it and redeems it 
and make something to glorify himself. So the first thing we see is that God redeems his brilliant mind. We spoke about this educated guy, but now God is actually going to take that and focus all of his mental energy on seeing Jesus. He says in Colossians, I have the mind of Christ. He says in Colossians, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things below. He starts to see all those Old Testament verses that caused him to be religious are actually Old Testament verses that point towards Jesus. God redeemed his mind and his mind gets full of Christ and he gets the mind of Christ. Second thing we see is that God redeemed his prolific pen. This was the same hand that wrote on a pen, can I get permission for 150 miles jurisdiction to murder Christians? The same hand wrote, Romans, Thessalonians, Philemon, Ephesians, every book of the Bible that Paul wrote was by the hand of the same man who got permission to kill. Now he writes a letter that actually brings life by the Spirit because God redeemed his prolific pen. God is the God of the turnaround. Every single thing that you have in your life and your past, God can turn it around for his glory, for his good. The third thing is that God redeemed his resilient nature. Instead of walking all that, that distance to actually murder Christians, he now walks that distance to build up Christians. Instead of walking that distance that he used to walk in order to tear down churches, he walked that distance to plant churches, to build up churches. He no longer persecutes Christians, he pastors Christians. Everything of his old life is completely flipped on its head. We see that his reputation preceded him. He was a riot starter. Wherever he went, towns got upset because this guy changed the game when he preached. So his reputation preceded him. He was locked away. He was beaten. He was beaten so many times. He was whipped so many times with a cat and nine tails. How many of you remember when Duncan preached us on Easter Friday and we heard about Jesus' back that had chunks probably ripped off of his back by the hooks on the whips? Paul received those 30 lashings, uh, 40 lashings minus one multiple times in his life. He had parts of his back that were missing because he was persecuted. We actually have an account, a biography written about Paul where it's just called the back because what they see about this man is he walked with the hunchback from all the times that he had flesh ripped out of his back. This was a man that could not be stopped from preaching the gospel. That resilient nature to end the people of Jesus became the resilient nature to preach the message of Jesus. God turned it around. My question to you is, are you willing to follow Jesus wherever he takes you? Are you willing to follow Jesus even if it means your physical health and safety is not guaranteed? Because here we have a Paul who understands, I was blind, but now I see. And so I go where Jesus sends me. Because I know he met me on Damascus Road. So I don't question I understand. That's my reasonable worship. My body is a living sacrifice. He says in Romans 12, I lay down my life on the altar. He says, my body. This was a guy who worshiped God with his body. He was adrift at sea. He was shipwrecked. He was robbed. He was flogged. All of this happened. In fact, the one time he was stoned, I bet you when they were throwing stones and rocks at him that he thought about Stephen and how he murdered that brother. Now one day they're stoning him. They thought he was dead. He's lying on the ground, comatose. They thought he's dead, but he's not dead. He gets up. What does he do? He goes and preaches to those very people that threw rocks at him and nearly killed him. This guy's mad. I would have asked for a day off. I would have put in something here on Taryn's desk. I'm sure there's T's and C's if you get stoned by a group of men, you get the day off the next day. Not even this, the next day. The day that he wakes up, 
does he go, let's go get a shawarma? No, he doesn't even get a shawarma. He just goes straight to the people that nearly murdered him and said, I need you to know about Jesus. I need you to understand. The same way that you try to stone me to death, there were people that were religious that stoned Jesus. They hurt Jesus. They put him down. But it's him that saves. It's by his blood that we're saved. That's the kind of resilience that we see in this apostle Paul. He can't be stopped. He can't be stopped because he understands what Jesus has done for him. Will you take a stand for Jesus? When you are in a situation where you might be unpopular for your faith, are you willing to stand up and say, my allegiance is first and foremost to Jesus? It's not about my popularity. You must be willing to stand out from the crowd. Now, the broader application, because many of us don't find this very easy to grasp, the suffering for the gospel deal. Although I assure you, it is coming to our nation in the next couple, in the next few years, there will be greater and greater persecution worldwide. So we best get ready and gird up the loins of our mind for the fact that this is a reality that we must all face. You're not going to be excluded because you're in a Bryanston house. This is for all of us to take note of. And I know the day will come when Laura and I have to go. And we will go to the persecuted nations and hopefully we are brave enough to say, here I am, Lord, send me. And our physical safety will not be guaranteed. And that doesn't make us superheroes, it just makes us Christian for obeying the voice of God. Not all of you have to be missionaries. Not all of you need to be evangelists. But all of us need to, in our places, in our spaces, in our relationships, cultivate that for God's glory. It means we're not scared of being unpopular because we know what Jesus did for us. So what talents has God given you? Because they need to be redeemed for his glory. What are the, the abilities, the spheres of influence, and all, even your ragged past? What are the things that God has given you uniquely? Because I'm telling you, your ability is not randomly selected and generated from a computer algorithm. God strategically, when you were in your mother's womb, knitted you together and he thought about the ways that you could impact the world for his glory. And none of them are random. So what are the things that you have in your life I would say to you, go to God and bring him those things and say, Lord, this is what I've got. I've got this house. How can I use it for your glory? I've got this car. How can I use it for your glory? I've got a gift with computers. How can I use it for your, I almost fell off the stage. How can I use it for your glory? Whatever it is that we've got, we've got to say, here, Lord, I'm your vessel. You saved me. I want to glorify you with the things that I have. That's the broader application, because I understand that one day that Paul would have been there appointing a deacon and laying a hand on a deacon to be in the church as a, as a leader, and that he would have understand that it's the same hand that killed the deacon. I understand that there were days that he would preach up, get up to preach at a funeral where he thinks, I remember when I killed a Christian brother. That's his testimony. That's what God did in his life. God changed it all around. But God has done the same thing for you if you're in Christ. And he wants to redeem your life to be used for God's glory. So the band's going to come join me on stage. And we're going to start getting into a place of response. If God has made us hope bringers, if he has called us his ambassadors, if we are his heavenly representatives, the places that he puts you, the gifts that he gave you, they are all to be leveraged for him and for his glory. If you find yourself in a wheelchair, God's going to use you in that space. Even tragedy, even your past. In my past, I used to be a guy that liked to destroy Christians in argumentation and tell them they're stupid. 
for believing in Christianity. Well, God flipped that script on me, and today I'm running a course. I'm now not on the offense. I'm on team defense, on team Jesus. I'm still using my gifts. You get it. God, God gave me a gift. I like to argue. My mother and my father know. I love to argue. Only person better at arguing than me is my dad. So that's unfortunate. But all the gifts that God gave us, I love to pour over and analyze lyrics. Used to use that for cradle of filth. Used to use that for like satanic lyrics. I used to do that for like Nietzsche's atheistic writings. But God gave me the gift of analyzing, breaking down meaning. And now he uses it for me to look into the Bible, which is the holy living word of God, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing between bone and marrow. It cuts like a sword through the darkness with a message of life to the hopeless and afraid, breathing life into all who believe. And he said, I want you to put your nose into the Bible and use the gifts that I've given you to break that meaning down and deliver it to people. God's the God of the turnaround. He's the redeemer. He takes all of your weaknesses, he takes all of that and he turns them into jars of clay. We've been singing about that. He turns graves into gardens. We've been singing about the fact that he's the God of the turnaround. So will you stand with me as we get into a place of worship and adoration? We're about to sing a song about this very thing, bringing our things to God and saying, this is what I've got, Lord, use me. We're gonna sing all these pieces broken and, and shattered in mercy gathered, mended and whole. Take this heart, Lord. I'll be your vessel. The world to see your life in me. And I want you to think about the fact that God turned Saul around and used all of his weaknesses for his glory, for God's glory. God wants to do that in your life. And moreover, we're going to sing about this amazing Jesus with his amazing grace, how he saves by grace alone. And we're going to sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, the foremost of sinners. I once was lost, but now I found, I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Let's sing to him.